brotherly love, sisterly love matters so much to God, matters more to him than perhaps we realize or recognize, certainly matters more to him than it does naturally matter to us. Our love one for another matters so much to God, in fact, that he gave his son to purify us to be a people of love. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us today. And uh, Jonathan, I hear you talk about brotherly love, sisterly love. It matters to God, ought to matter to us. But frankly, Jonathan, there's some people in my life that are a little bit harder to love than others. There are some uh, people whose personalities, I think, make it a little bit harder to love. So if this matters so much to God, where does the fact that God gave his son to purify us kind of enter into this equation? Well, certainly, Steve, there are certain people in in certain situations who provide us a special opportunity to grow in this area, who perhaps stretch our capacity for love, and there are situations where we need to look to the Lord for His, His special help. That's true for all of us in certain situations and in certain seasons. But I think it's easy for us to underestimate the importance of love for one another within Christian community. Sometimes we think that our salvation is just a purely individual matter. God has given his son for me so that I can be saved and go to heaven at the end. But when we read the New Testament carefully, we find that God has saved us to be part of a new kind of community here on earth and then in heaven and in the new creation to come. But God God is really interested in the dynamics of our community relationships and in the dynamics of our treatment of one another. Well, Peter wrote about this in the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. So let's open our Bibles together and uh, look and see what he had to say as we continue our message, A Call to Love. Here is Jonathan. Getting clean, being purified, it always has a purpose. The house is furiously cleaned up to a level not seen in a long time. You think the in-laws are coming. Think of a hospital operating room. The careful cleaning of all surfaces, the sterilization of the instruments, the doctors and nurses scrubbing up as they go in. You might observe all that from a gallery if it's an operating room with a gallery. And knowing little or nothing about the workings of a hospital, you would watch all this in ignorance and think, I I know that something important is going to happen here with all this cleansing going on. Or you see a person who who perhaps works with their hands, who has a, a job that just happens to get them grimy and dirty, maybe the mechanic who knows what it is to be covered in oil, or the miner, think of the old days in the coal mines or someone who works today in landscaping. They rush home in a hurry and they shower and scrub up and then maybe put on some smart clothes, a suit and a tie or whatever. They look clean and smart and you know that they must be going somewhere significant and meaningful. Cleansing always has a purpose. What is God's purpose in your cleansing and in my cleansing? The answer is clear-cut actually in the text. According to verse 22, the express purpose of our cleansing is sincere brotherly love having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love now that's very striking isn't it that's very interesting if you hadn't read that but asked yourself the question why did Jesus cleanse my heart why did he purify my soul what answer might you have given you know you might have said well to make me happier uh, to make me feel less guilty to free me up to live a, a life of fulfillment to make me ready for heaven. Well, what does God say in his word? He purified our soul for a sincere brotherly love. Now, that's very, very interesting. And it tells us a few things. It tells us that this cleansing is needed. It is necessary if we're going to be able to love in that way. 
And it tells us as well that our brotherly love one for another matters a great deal to God. It is important in his sight. See, if the Lord Jesus Christ came down to heaven, came to earth below, took on flesh, lived among us, suffered and died in our place for the cleansing of our souls so that for the sake of producing sincere brotherly affection among us, then friends, here is the message plain and simple. Our brotherly and sisterly affection, one for another, how we love one another as believers in Christ, that matters to God more than you and I can possibly fathom or dream. And friends, as I see that in the text and as I hear that in the word of God, I do find myself wondering if you and I care about brotherly and sisterly affection in the way that God cares about brotherly and sisterly affection. I find myself wondering if we really share the heart of God in this matter. You see, I think we tend to believe that other things matter a little bit more. I think we come into Christian community carrying a list of requirements and expectations. I think we, all of us, most of us tend to do that. You know, we, we have relational and emotional needs that we want to see met. We have a theological checklist, and it's not wrong to be theologically discerning, but we want to make sure that our doctrinal concerns are satisfied. We feel perhaps that we have some gifts to use, and we want to see our gifts employed and recognized. <laughs> And so easily we come to Christian community with a set of expectations for others and of others. And we are looking to see, aren't we, if our expectations are met and if our needs are being addressed. Now, we all do that to some extent, I think. If you are someone who is church shopping, as it were, looking around, seeking to find a church and you're going to different places, you may well be thinking along those lines to some extent. And as we engage in Christian community over the long haul, those interests and those concerns, they don't really go away entirely. But with that outlook in mind, knowing that this is how we naturally think, I am just so struck by the profound priority here of love. You see, the outlook of the gospel moves us from thinking about the satisfaction of our own needs and the meeting of our own requirements within Christian community, and it moves us from that paradigm and teaches us instead to prioritize love for others, loving one another well. Brotherly love, sisterly love matters so much to God, matters more to him than perhaps we realize or recognize, certainly matters more to him than it does naturally matter to us. Our love one for another matters so much to God, in fact, that he gave his son to purify us to be a people of love. The very heart of sin is a self-focus, isn't it? And a self-love, that's what sin is all about. It's about deciding that the universe is centered on me and not on God. It's about deciding that I will live my way in my own wisdom for my own purposes. That's what was happening in the heart of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's what happens in every sinful heart, yours and mine. And it's the very opposite, isn't it, of love. And it takes the purifying work of Christ through the gospel to change a heart of self-love to make it a heart of love for others. It's a miracle of grace, of course, when that happens. This Miracle can only happen, end of verse 22, when there is purification. You won't see this kind of love where a heart has not yet been made pure. There are remnants, of course, of love in the world all around us. The fallen human heart is still capable of love, of course, to an extent. We, we do see it 
in, in unbelievers around us and we rejoice in that. And yet it is, it is always, isn't it, distorted and defiled by sin. But the heart made pure by Christ is able to love in a new way. This love is marked, you'll see it there in verse 22, by sincerity and by earnestness. You see, this isn't a superficial love. It's not love for a moment. It's not a love that gives up. It's not a love that pays a mere lip service. This is love that is committed to loving, love that is committed to relationship for the long term, love that is committed to the good of the other, devoted to the needs of the other. And wonderfully, we do see this kind of love at work within the Christian community. Not perfectly, never perfectly, this side of heaven, but we see signs and evidences of it within the church. Never perfectly, of course. We're very far from perfect. But many here within our church family will testify of having seen and experienced and received Christian love in community here, a love that is sincere, a love that is self-giving, a love that is uncalculating. There'll be those among us who have faced times of loneliness and need, material, spiritual, physical. And you'll have a story to tell. Many within this room will have a story to tell of the sincere and earnest love of the people of God for you. There are very, very wonderful stories of that in this place. And praise God for the signs of his love, the evidences of it, where it is seen. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want to say a brief word, if I may, about the relationship between love and truth. This is actually an area of constant confusion, and I would add distortion. You see, there are those who will take the call to love and the priority of love within Scripture and kind of contort that call to say that we as Christians may not ever criticize or question anyone or any behavior. Love must trump all. Have you ever heard that kind of thing? This pressure is especially acute in an age when society has taken moral choices and lifestyle preferences and, and so on and declared that these things are tied to a person's identity. This is what's going on all around us at the present time. So that my identity is now bound up with my ethical choices, with my behavioral preferences, and so on. And so if you will not affirm me in all that I do, then you are an unloving person by definition. And you are failing with respect to the biblical mandate to love. And what we see happen is that Christian people churches, leaders, end up quickly bowing to that pressure and saying, well, look, of course, you know, we're not going to criticize any behavior. We're not going to criticize any choice. The overarching call of the Bible, you know, it is to love. And, and we don't question morality or preference. We'll just love. And, you know, naively, we can listen to that and think, oh, yes, that sounds very, very good. We must just allow love to override everything else. And we, we must just brush every other concern aside the pressure upon us to do that very thing at the present time is just immense, isn't it? Overwhelming pressure. And how convenient it would be for us to set aside concerns of truth to affirm everyone in everything they do under a banner of love. I mean, if we did that, wouldn't that make us so much less repugnant to our society and to our culture at the present time? Wouldn't that save us all kinds of inconvenience, awkwardness, uh, embarrassment, and all the rest. Now, plenty of leaders and plenty of churches are moving in that direction at the present time. It is definitely the easy route. But as we consider these things, may I just point out the logic of verse 22. Notice here, please, the relationship between truth and love. 
Peter writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What is the relationship between truth and brotherly love in the church of Jesus Christ? How do these two relate? Well, the church of Jesus Christ is the fellowship of people who have come to a place of submission and obedience to the truth of God's word. The basis of our fellowship is a commitment to the truth of God's word. And to enter into that, there is a requirement of repentance because we are all sinners and we stand opposed to the word of God in our natural state. So there is repentance and belief that go together. But the basis of our familiar relationship in Christ is an obedience to the truth as it has been revealed in Scripture. We have no other basis of fellowship than the truth of God's Word. And so if we say, well, look, we will just ignore truth, ignore the moral standards of the Word of God in the name of love, we have fundamentally misunderstood the basis of Christian community. We have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is formed by an adherence to the truth of the word of God. And then it is bound together by brotherly and sisterly affection among those who share that commitment to the word of God. That is the logic of verse 22. It's inescapable. But it is remarkable to me how quickly professing believers are seeking to sidestep, modify, or ignore that bond between truth and love in Christ. And friends, we need to be realistic about this. The pressure is only going to grow for us to do this. The cost of holding to truth as the basis of fellowship, that cost will only rise in the years to come. I don't know what sanctions will be before us, but the Bible could not be more clear. Love one another earnestly because you have been made pure and made pure by obedience to the truth. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message entitled A Call to Love. It is part of our series on the book of 1 Peter called Faith Under Fire. And if you ever miss a broadcast in our series, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. You know, one other way to stay connected with Jonathan's teaching is to check out our YouTube channel. If you're on our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, you'll find a link there. You can also go directly to YouTube and search for Encounter the Truth. And that way you can not only listen to, but actually watch Jonathan teach God's word. Again, you can find Encounter the Truth on the YouTube channel, or we'll link you to it through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Love one another earnestly because you have been made pure, and made pure by obedience to the truth. Next, love one another earnestly because you have been born again. Verse 23, love one another earnestly, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
To be born again is to be given a new start and a new life. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus he needed that night when that religious leader came to see him, to learn from him, came to ask him questions. And Jesus made it clear that he needed not just a little bit more insight, but an entirely new life. And largely because of that famous visit, we have learned the language of being born again. And we've learned that concept. A real Christian, we understand, is a born-again Christian. Even popular culture, I think, knows something of that category and that language. A true Christian is one who has new life by the Spirit and through the gospel. But what does being born again have to do with love? What is the connection here between the two? Well, I think we see the connection perhaps most clearly when we turn the logic around in the other direction, when we ask, as it were, the opposite question, what does the old life, the life that perishes, what does it have to do with lovelessness, with a lack of love? Well, isn't it true that for the people of this world who have nothing to look forward to except the grave, isn't it true that if this is all that life is, then people will be inclined to love themselves above all else. Isn't that right? I mean, why invest in others if there is no future for them and no future for you? Why not simply love yourself and seek to extract as much experience and pleasure as you can from the short years that you have here on this earth, given that there is nothing else to look forward to, nothing else to invest in? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the outlook. And in a sense, it's not unreasonable if there's nothing to look forward to. But in the gospel message, in the good news, in the word that was preached to us, we were given new life, new birth, and a new future. The seed of the word of God is imperishable. It does not fade nor die like the things of this world. We die. People die. All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of the field. But God's word is not like that. It remains forever. And you and I, if we have received the word and received Christ through his message, we have received a new birth, a new life, and it is not susceptible to death. The new life will endure beyond the grave, and that means that our horizon, it is totally changed. Our perspective on life has been radically altered through the word of God. A few weeks ago, I went with a couple of our kids to a giant kind of kids' arcade, a gaming center down in Toronto. I don't, I don't really know what I was thinking, actually. Uh, it, was, it was loud. Uh, it was very, very busy. Uh, it was crowded. Uh, it was expensive. It was generally exhausting. They absolutely loved it, the kids. <laughs> After the experience, I, really, I just needed to come home and find a darkened room where I could sit quietly and recover. But if you've played some arcade games, you'll you'll be familiar with the particular games, and these are truly awful. There are different versions of it. But games where essentially there's a countdown clock, and, and in the time that you have, you just have to score as many points as you possibly can before the clock reaches zero. Either you're, you know, you're, you're hitting something mindlessly, or you're shooting something, or you're tossing something. All of this, it's all migraine-inducing uh, in its own way. And you, you basically just go crazy for a short period of time to try and rack up as many points as you possibly can before the timer buzzes. Now, that is a wonderful picture, actually, of how you and I used to live. That is the secular outlook and mindset in a nutshell. Life is short. 
The clock is ticking. How much pleasure, experience, wealth, whatever, how many points can you rack up for yourself before the buzzer goes? Isn't that it? But now in Christ, we have been granted an eternal extension. Life now does not end with the grave and result in judgment. And suddenly through the new birth, we are liberated to live in a totally different way. We've got this new community to enjoy here on earth, but we know that we will be part of this same community in heaven. You, you and I, all of us together who know Christ, we're traveling companions, aren't we, on our way to glory. And we're freed up from selfish pursuit now to genuinely love one another. We're, we're freed to do that knowing that we are not missing out on anything at all by doing so. By, by giving time and resources and energy to invest in the good of brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not missing out on anything because we have all eternity before us in fullness of life. You see, the new birth actually liberates us to love. Friends, love is the mark of the true believer. It is the centerpiece of God's vision for us as redeemed people. We are to love because we have been made pure and because we have been born again. Let me ask, how is it going for you? How is it going loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, loving them sincerely in an uncalculating way, loving them in earnestness? Now, the answer to that question is you reflect upon it in your own heart. It's perhaps a little complicated, I guess. Maybe it's a, a little bit messy. Maybe it's actually quite uncomfortable as you give thought to it. You see, I think if we're honest about it, we all find this very, very hard, at least at times and in seasons. Now, there are always, there are those brothers and sisters in Christ who are just easy to love. They're Christ-like and mature in the faith. They're gracious. They brighten our lives. Each interaction is actually just a joy. But there are others, aren't there? <laughs> there are others and, you know, you've, you've been hurt, and they're difficult, and there's history, and there have been some wounds, and you're still feeling bruised and, and battered. And then there will be others who, there's not that kind of history, but you, if you're being honest, you just find them pretty irksome. Maybe they're a little odd, a bit unusual. Your temptation is to find them annoying, and you just, if you're being honest, you just struggle to love them. And, and I, I, I could go on with scenarios, but you, you know what I mean. And as we talk about these things, your conscience is maybe bothering you a little, and your heart is heavy because you know there are some brothers and sisters, maybe just one or two, who you today are struggling to love. Frankly, you are failing to love them, and you know it. And, and it may be that there are some brothers or sisters around who, who today really need a practical expression of your love. Some, they need some of your time. They need some of your energy. They need some of your encouragement. Maybe there is someone in financial or practical need, and, and you know it, and you know you could help them, and you've been trying to ignore it. I, I don't know what it is that might come to mind for you or what it is that may be upon your heart today. But if the, if the Lord is showing you by his word that you need to address something, that you need to repent of some lack of love, let me encourage you, take positive steps to show that person the love you need to show them today. If the Lord is prompting you, don't ignore or delay. If there's repentance needed, repent before the Lord. If there's something that needs to be done in concrete terms, do that thing. Having been purified of heart by the very blood of Christ, having been born again by the very word of God, let's be the people, friends, 
that he's called us to be. Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, A Call to Love, here on Encounter the Truth. Well, do you ever wonder, how do we define Christianity and who gets to determine what Christianity even means? And is it possible to understand the original meaning of Christianity after centuries of tradition and conflicting ideas? Well, David Gooding and John Lennox, they actually throw some fresh light on these questions by tracing the Book of Acts' historical account of the message that proved so effective in the time of Christ's apostles. We also take a look at Luke's record of its confrontations with competing philosophical and religious systems. We'd love to send you their book, The Definition of Christianity, is our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. You can find out more or give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-998-7884. That's 1-833-99-TRUTH. Or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. And when you're at the website, I hope you'll take a moment and sign up for a newsletter or check out our weekly devotional called Moment of Truth. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.